In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, O God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 84. Psalm 84. The title of this psalm is To the Chief Musician on an instrument of Gat, a psalm of the sons of Korah. To the chief musician. It is thought by some that the chief musician is our Lord God himself. But others said the chief musician can be the leader of the choir or musicians during the time of David, like Asaph or Heman. On an instrument of Gat, actually the scholars did not know what it means, the word Gat here. So there are many interpretations. Some think it may refer to a tune commonly sung in a Palestinian city of Gat. You know, Palestine at the time were five cities. One of them was Gat. But other said it was instrument that was invented in Gat. Others said if we search the root of the word Gat in Hebrew means wine press, wine press. So it's a joyful hymn for those who trade the grapes and make wine. The word Gat came or comes in the introduction of three psalms. This Psalm 84, Psalm 8, and Psalm 81. And these three psalms actually have a joyous character. So it can be concluded that where we find the word Gat in the title, we expect a hymn of joy and gladness. Then the last part in the introduction, we explain to the chief musician on an instrument of Gat. Then the last part, a psalm of the son of Korah. These sons of Korah were Levites from the family of Korah. During David's time, they served in the musical aspect of the temple worship, as we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 19. They served at, as temple keepers and also as bakers, and the temple was their life. Their grand-grand-grandfather Korah led a rebellion of 250 community leaders against Moses regarding the priesthood. Why Aaron and his children are the priests? Why not us? And actually, they got censors and started to raise incense. This happened in the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt, as we read in the book of Numbers, chapter 16. But God judged Korah and his leaders, and all of them died. As we read in Numbers 16, verse 32, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together. But the children of Korah lived, remained, survived. As we read in number 26, verse 11, nevertheless, the children of Korah 
did not die. Perhaps the children of Korah were so grateful for God's mercy upon them that they become notable in Israel for praising God and all their psalms actually are joyful psalms. Their name came as the son of Korah in ten psalms from Psalm 44 to 48, Psalm 84 to 88. And all these psalms are psalms of joy without any reference to grief. But did they write it? Some think that this psalm might have been sent to them to be sung because they were the singers. Or maybe one of them might have been its author. But others believe that David is the author of this psalm. Because the language in which it is written shows to be written by David. And it was written when he fled from his son Absalom. Whether it is David or another psalmist, whether he speak in his own name or that of Israel, generally it is undoubtedly at present the, the, the author at the present time, yeah, the time in which he wrote the psalm, he was unable to share in the temple services, which he so joyfully describes. As we read in verse 2, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the court of the Lord. So this means that he is unable to share in the temple service, which he so joyfully describes. Psalm 84 is classified as pilgrimage psalm. What does mean pilgrimage psalm? Sung as praise by those who traveled to Jerusalem to worship. And the church teaches us when we enter the church, so at the door of the church, we make the sign of the cross. And actually we should walk slowly reciting this Psalm, Psalm 84. That's why it is beautiful if we memorize this Psalm by heart. So we walk slowly reciting this Psalm until we reach in the front of the altar where we prostrate before God. That's why it's called a pilgrimage psalm. And others believe that this psalm wrote to be sung by those who are unable to go to the house of the Lord because of something beyond their ability, like illness, for example. This psalm has so many points of resemblance to Psalm 42 and 43, because in these three Psalms we can see the spirit of fervent devotion to the service of God and love for the worship in the temple. This Psalm is 12 verses and it is divided into three equal sections. Each section ends by word Silah, and Silah is a pause for reflection and meditation. So we'll find the word Tisila after verse 4 and after verse 8. Also, in the book of Agbeya, we pray this psalm in the sixth hour. So it is one of the psalms of the sixth hour of the Agbeya. As I told you, it's only 12 verses. 
verse 1 and 2, the psalmist eager longing for the house of God. 3 and 4, the blessedness of those who dwell in the house of God. 5 to 8, strength for those who are away from the house of God. And from 9 to 12, the greatness of God and his house. So let's start from verse 1. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints to the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So verse 1 and 2 express the psalmist's delight in the house of God. He begins by desiring to be where God dwells and longs to be in the presence of God always. You can see the affection here is very clear. He loved the house of God, whether it is a tent like the tabernacle of meeting or a permanent building later during Solomon time. For wherever God was worshipped, there, in the place of worship, he was supposed to dwell. Of course, God dwells everywhere. But since the world is full of corruption, God asked us to choose a place, and this place actually, to separate it from the rest of the world. And to make this place a holy place. So we should be very careful not to sin in this place. Your holiness becomes your house, O Lord of hosts. So every time we enter this place that's holy, that's separated from the rest of the earth, this will be an icon of heaven, the holy of the holiest. And God promised that there will be a special blessing in these places, in the church. God dwells everywhere, but there will be a special blessing in the church, the consecrated place that is separated from the rest of the world. So, David, if the author is David, considered the tabernacle beautiful, how lovely. His expressions shows us that his feeling were overwhelming. How lovely to my memory, to my mind, to my heart, to my eye, to my whole soul is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. In some translation like the Arabic, it is plural, not singular. In English, it is singular. How lovely is your tabernacle. But in Arabic, plural. ما أحلى مساكنك أو مساكنك محبوبة أيها الرب إله قوات. So, something that the plural is used either to express the dignity of the house of God or it may be used with reference to the various building of which the temple is composed. If you remember, there is the holy and the holy of the holies, and outside, outside them, the court where the people were standing. As we read in Hebrew chapter 9, 
the first and second part of the tabernacle, the holy place and the holy of the holies beside the courts of the people. He said, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. Why he said, O Lord of hosts? Because if God is there, then his angels will be there also. So he is the Lord of hosts because of the presence of the angels in the sanctuary of God. That's why in the verses of the symbols, we say, hail to the church, the house of the angels. And the titles of God is scattered throughout this love song in greater variety than one would expect. Can you imagine this psalm is 12 verse? You will find 16 names and titles for God in 12 verses. Clearly, the psalms delight in the exalted titles of the Lord he loves. As we say, your name is sweet and blessed in the mouth of your sins. God's name is always on his lips. And the psalmist's appreciation for God's house was not simply because it was beautiful. No, he so longed for God's house, even faints when he denied the privilege of meeting with God among his people. That's why he said, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. This was deep feeling. Everything within him, his heart and his flesh, longed for God and his house. Now he reveals his deep feelings as he think about the temple. His spirit desires to be in the courts of the Lord. His desire is so powerful that he says that he faints for the chance to be in the courts of the Lord. His heart and his flesh sing for joy to the living God when thinking about being in God's presence. My soul longs, even faints. Faints means his soul is consumed or wasting away with longing to be in the court of the Lord. And the soul and body partake together in the longing for the kingdom of heaven. This speaks to the servants of God today. We must make places, churches, where people can come and serve the Lord. And also, we shouldn't have churches and these churches are closed all the week we have to make meetings in which people meet with the living god to satisfy the desire my soul longs even faints to the courts of the lord this speaks also to all who come to the house of god today do we have this longing or the coming of the church is like a burden to us. We must come with the primary focus and expectation of meeting with the living God. That's why you are here, to meet the living God. Verse 3. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay 
her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. The psalmist actually painted the image of the sparrow and of the swallow and left to the reader to interpret it. Some say that the birds actually nest on the altars. Sometimes in the big churches we can see birds flying inside the, the church or inside the cathedral or on the windows they make nests or in the dome when there is a high tower actually some birds make their nests there. So the meaning in this case might be that even birds love to build their nests as they do in the secret area. How much more reason has the believing heart to find its home in the house of God? If the birds are happy to make their nest in your house, how much more I want to be in the courts of the Lord? So the creation of God is portrayed as enjoying being in God's presence. The bird can come freely to the place where God was worshipped, to the very altars, and make their home there undisturbed. So how strongly in contrast with this, with the condition of the wandering person or the exiled person, or the person who cannot come because of illness, or if it is written by David, who was escaping from his son Absalom, and he cannot go to the house of the Lord. The birds never have to leave while the psalmist longs to spend this amount of time in the presence of God. So some say that the birds were found in and about the temple. But others said it is very unlikely that the sparrow and the swallow or bird of any kind should be permitted to build their nests and hatch their young in or about the altar, especially in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle of meeting or in the temple of Solomon. Why? These altars were kept in a state of purity and where continuous fires were kept up for the purpose of sacrifice and burning incense. So it's difficult for a sparrow or a swallow to make their nest there. So what is the meaning? He might want to express how the sparrow and the swallow seem to have a happy destiny, to be in a condition to be envied. So both the sparrow and the swallow ha have their own homes and they are happy in their own homes. So the psalmist envies the privilege of the, of the bird as if he is saying, as these birds rejoice when they have found a nest for themselves and their young birds, so I desire a place in your temple and in your courts near your altar to be home. In the house and at the altar of God, a faithful soul finds freedom from worry and sorrow, finds peace and joy like a bird that has secured a nest to care for her young. Many times when we are in affliction or difficult time, just when we come to church and 
have a seat or kneel down before the altar in silence and prayer, just we restore our peace, we restore our joy. That is exactly like how the bird secured a nest for themselves to care for their children. Other explanation, sparrow is an example of a bird of a small significance. And a swallow is a picture of restlessness, fly from one place to another place. So even the insignificant will find home in the house of God. God accepts everybody. And even the restless soul can find rest near the altar of God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your lords, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, my King and my God. St. Augustine comments on my King and my God and says, What is my King and my God? It is you who rule me and you have created me. Verse 4 Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still they will still be praising you. Salam. In verse 4, the metaphor of the sparrow and swallow is dropped. And the former feeling of longing and the emotion of fainting now expressed in a plain language. So, who are those who dwell in your house? Many commentators said the psalmist meant the priests because they are constantly praising and serving God. So the psalmist went from envying the birds to envying the priest, envying here in, in, in a positive way, not in a bad way, who had room, rooms at the house of God. He felt since they are living in the course of God, so they could live a life of constant praise. As he said, they will still be praising you. Nothing will stop them from praising you. Blessed are not the mighty, not the wealthy of the earth, but those who dwell in God's house. Those who can always be in God's presence have a great blessing and a great advantage. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Your house may mean your church, where believers find it good to draw near God, as he always pours out his spirit on his sincere worshippers. In the church, we receive all the sacraments. St. Augustine says, if you have your own house, you are poor. But if God's house is your house, you are rich. In your house, you will fear robbers, but in the house of God, he is himself the wall. Therefore, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They possess the heavenly Jerusalem without constraint, without pressure, without difference and division of boundaries. All have it and each have all. All have it and each have all. Great are those riches. Then, as I told you, it's divided into three sections, each section four verses, and each section ends by the word Sila. 
Sila is a musical pause for contemplation. So now it is worth while to pause and meditate upon the hope of dwelling with God and praising him. Verse 5. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. From verse 5 to 8, second four verses, express that not only those who dwell within the wall of the temple, like the priest, are blessed, but those who in the strength of God, defeating every obstacle, appear in his presence and offer their prayers. The man who finds his strength in God is also the one whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Set on pilgrimage means what? Pilgrimage, when you come to a holy place, it's pilgrimage. Every time you come to the church, it's pilgrimage. So he is saying, blessed are those who put their strength in God, or he gets their strength from God, and also, blessed is the man whose strength is in God, also his heart is set on pilgrimage. He wants to be in the church all the time. Any opportunity in which the church is open, he will go there. That's whose heart is set on pilgrimage. So, they find their strength in God means they don't rely on self or the world for strength, but consider himself a visitor, a traveler, pilgrim in the world. Here is home, outside here are strangers. His true strength and treasure are in the world to come. This strength and heart of a pilgrim are displayed by the love for the house of God. So when we have the love for the house of God, outside the church we, we feel we are strangers, we are sojourners, and we want to come to the church to get strength from God. There in the church, we meet with God, along with other believers, along with other pilgrims, and we gain strength in God together when we meet. The love and longing for the house of God are not meant as an escape from the world, no. Actually, we come here to prepare for the life in the world, to be prepared and ready. We get strength, so when we go back to the world, we can face all the challenges in the world. God is a strength of all who trust in Him. So the psalmist seems to mean that mere dwelling in the house of God is not enough for blessedness. Coming regularly to the house of God is not enough to be blessed. But to trust in God, to have God for one's strength is essential, required and necessary to be blessed. Because all strength must come from God. Their strength is to be obtained by waiting on Him. Verse 6 As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. The word Baka 
is derived from the root which means to weep. Hebrew and Arabic are similar. Baka in Arabic, al-buka, weeping. So the sense or the meaning of the value of Baka is not totally known. Many commentators suggest that Baka speaks of tears and weeping, or of the drought and dryness where one faced difficulty and trouble. So those who are walking in the valley of Baca, it's a world with all the sorrow, the challenges, the afflictions, the hardships, the troubles that we face every day. But others believe that the valley of Baca was some waterless and barren valley through which pilgrims passed on their way to Jerusalem. So it is a geographical valley called Valley of Baca, and they called it Valley of Baca because it's waterless and barren valley. And the pilgrims, they must go through it when they go to Jerusalem. Though they pass through this barren and desert place, they would not fear evil. They would not fear that they will die from thirst, knowing that God will supply all their needs. That's why, although it is waterless, but by their tears, they make it a spring. They water it by their tears. There is no spring, there is no rivers, but their tears actually will make this valley a spring. And even in the sandy desert, they will find pools of water in consequence of which they shall advance with renewed strength. So they trust God. So when they walk in the valley of Baca, that is desert, waterless, barren, God, because they trusted him, he will rain. The rain also covers it with pools. As God actually in the wilderness of Sinai, he brought, brought water from the rock and actually quenched the thirst of the children of Israel. So a difficult place such as the valley of Baca was transformed into a spring complete with rain and pools of water, which means faith turned the difficult time, difficult time of drought and dryness into a place of springs find refreshment even in the most unpleasant circumstances because God refreshed us with showers of blessing from above as the rain clothed the dry plain with grass and flowers. So while the followers of God are passing through the wilderness of this world, God opens for them fountains in the wilderness and springs in the dry places as he did with the Israelites. So, the psalmist is picturing the ups and downs of life. We go through the valley of weeping between time of strength. There are time of strength and time of weeping. There are times when life is smooth and easy, but there are time in between in which we move through the valley of weeping. When the righteous pass through a time of suffering or calamity, 
they turn it into a time of refreshment through prayers, through their tears. And the blessing of God rests on those who trust in him and causes them ever to increase in righteousness and true holiness. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. With the blessedness expressed by the plenty of the water in any other wise dry place, the pilgrims in strength and go to more strength, from strength to strength. And here the rich relationship with God is never-ending supply of strength for the journey. Even in the difficult season, you will grow in strength. On a normal journey, by the way, especially in a difficult road, the usual pattern for the person is to go from strength to weakness or fatigue, right? That's the normal uh, pattern. But here, for those who trust in God, they don't go from strength to weakness or fatigue, but they go from strength to strength. And instead of fainting on their hard journey, they gain fresh strength as they advance. They go from strength to strength. And what is the destiny to reach the court, to reach the temple, to reach Zion, where the temple is? Each one appears before God in Zion. So the journey has a destination, Zion, the city of God. So the love and longing for the house of God will bring each one to his destination, appearing before God in Zion. Verse 8, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. God is appealed to hear as a God of power, as a God who is able to accomplish all his purposes. You are a powerful God, so hear me and answer my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. It was a plea for the plenty spoken of, the plenty of blessings, and was a supplication for the strength that continues and builds, go from strength to strength. The psalmist grounded his plea in the long history of God's dealing with his covenant people. He calls to remembrance Jacob, who actually fought with God and told him, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob wrestled in prayer with God and prevailed, as we read in Genesis 32 from verse 24 to 30. That's why he called her, give ear, O God of Jacob, as if he is saying, as Jacob wrestled with you and you strengthened him and you blessed him before meeting his brother Esau, who was actually planning to kill him. Listen to my prayer in the same way. That same God who blessed and was faithful to Jacob will also be faithful to his people today. St. Augustine comments on God of Jacob and says, For God appeared unto him, and he was called Israel, seeing God, as if the psalmist is saying, Hear me therefore, O God of Jacob, and make me Israel. Again, this is worthy of meditation. Thus, the insertion of the Psalm 2nd, uh, Desilah, 
after verse 8. Verse 9. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. The word shield here can be taken as a reference to a literal shield, which was the main means of defense for Israel. Shield is used actually to hold it in their left hand. So when any arrows comes, they deflect the arrows with the shield. God was David's shield and the shield of his people to protect and defend them from their enemies and is the shield of all the believers. So the psalmist asked God to behold what Israel wisely did to defend itself. Though the psalmist had first in mind David, it also points toward the Messiah, the ultimate anointed one. O God, behold our shield, look at our shield and protect us, and look upon the face of your anointed. Your anointed can refer to David because he was anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel, but also refer to our Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the chrismated one, the Christ. So the psalmist request in regard to David is that God would look upon his outward state and condition. He is escaping and running away from his son Absalom, which was a distressed and afflicted one. God looked upon David with eye of pity and compassion. He being deprived of the sanctuary worship and service and even of the presence of God in the sanctuary. But if the psalmist has a view to the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, so he entreats that God the Father would look upon his son, the Messiah, and for his sake, hear and answer our prayer. Look upon his person and accept him in him. Accept us in your son, in Jesus, your beloved. To look upon, as if he asked God the Father, look upon the suffering of Christ and his death that he was to endure to save us from our sins. Also, look upon the face of your anointed. Some commentator take it to be a prayer for the speedy coming of the Messiah. Verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather to be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The psalmist began with love and longing for the house of God, and now he returned to the same thought. Time spent at God's house was better and more valuable than time spent anywhere, elsewhere. A day in God's presence worshipping is better than a thousand doing other things. Thousand day doing other things. But if we don't have this desire like the psalmist, maybe our desire reflect our sinful condition. If we want to spend the shortest time in the church and the longest time outside the church. 
It is a reflection of the main thought of the psalm, the incomparable blessedness of dwelling in God's house. That is actually the main theme of this psalm. Some commentators connect this verse with verses from 1 to 7, taking verse 8 and 9 as parenthetical and regard it as giving the reason for the desire to enter the temple which is the dominant area of the psalm. So, why there is a desire and longing to be in the temple? Because one day in your court, in its blessing, better than thousand years outside. That's why he said, I would rather to be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. If David is the author, so he said to be a doorkeeper is better than being a king. This was another expression of the psalmist's love and longing regarding the house of God. Living a luxurious life in the lavish tents of wickedness meant nothing to him. He would rather humbly serve in God's house. As a king, actually, he committed adultery and he killed. But living in the court of God, he would be praising the Lord. So the psalmist says that he would rather be troubled and burdened so as to be near the house of God rather than be in the comfort of tents but not near the Lord. So if I am troubled and burdened but in the house of God this is much much better than being in comfort but in the tent of the wicked people. To be a doorkeeper the verb used here is derived from a noun signifying cell or threshold. Or it would seem to mean here to stand on the threshold, to be at the door or the entrance, even without the privilege of entering the house. I think the Arabic has this meaning. Doorkeeper means I have a function. But just اخترت الوقوف على العتبة في بيت إلهي Just I'm standing outside at the gate This will be a blessing even if I did not enter So to be at the door or the entrance Even without privilege of the entering of the house Is better than thousand days in the tent of the wicked Prefer to be there at the, the door at the gate than to be in a house within the tent of the wicked. Be a doorkeeper may be this reference to the sons of Korah, because as I told you in the introduction, they were the doorkeepers of the temple of God. Verse 11, why you want to be at the door? For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory no good thing will he withhold from those who walk upright. So the psalmist explain the goodness and blessing that come to those pilgrims who love and long for the house of God. He said three things. They enjoy God as the source of blessing, like the sun and defense, shield. So he is the source of blessing and enlightenment. He is the sun 
and source of defense, shield. Not only a shield or protection, as he has been already called in verse 9, but God also as a son, source of life and light of joy and happiness. The second reason, the Lord will give grace and glory. The pilgrims will receive generous grace and glory, inward grace and outward splendor and glory, from outside glory, from within grace. So, he that partakes of the grace of God here on earth will partake of glory in heaven. The grace about which St. Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. And the glory that about which St. Paul says, There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The third, so number one, God is a sun and a shield. Number two, he will give grace and glory. Number three, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. A promise is made to those who walk uprightly. They will receive every good thing God has for them. God will never withhold anything from them. Then the last verse, verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Blessed is the man who trusts in you. It is a summary of the point of the psalm. God's greatness and God's goodness lead the psalms to experience and declare the blessedness of trusting in God. He has perfectly, the psalmist has perfectly described the true meaning of putting one's trust in the Lord. Only truly trust in the Lord when his desire is to be in the presence of the Lord above all else. Do you want to know whether your trust in, in the Lord is true or not? Ask yourself, what is your treasure? Where is your treasure? What is your desire? Do you want to be in the presence of God all the time of your life? Serving God and worshiping God is better than enjoying the comfort of life. God is our shield who hears our prayer and helps us through our difficult time. But we need to truly put our trust in the Lord. If one's desire does not match the desire of the psalmist, then one needs to know that he is not in God's grace. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord at all times, who trusts in the Lord, not in men. Trust in the Lord of hosts, in whom is everlasting strength, because he is the sun and the shield of his people. This concludes actually Psalm 84. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.